Welcome to Suspending the Rules, Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress. The new fiscal year begins this week, and Congress is officially on recess for the next two weeks, even as the House Intelligence Committee continues its work on an impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump. Welcome to Suspending the Rules from Bloomberg Government. I'm Adam Taylor. And I'm Sarah Babbage. Later in the show, we'll hear from Representatives Derek Kilmer and Tom Graves, the leaders of the House's Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. First, though, we turn to spending and welcome back BGAV Budget and Appropriations reporter Jack Fitzpatrick to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. Before leaving town last week, Jack, lawmakers cleared a continuing resolution. The president signed it. So the government's going to stay open until November 21st. What are the big takeaways other than no shutdown tomorrow? Yeah, well, that is the biggest takeaway, that we've cleared one hurdle. There's no shutdown. We're making it uh, until November 21st is the next deadline. The Democrats gave up a little and got a little. There was the brief fight over the farmer bailout payments. They allowed those to continue, but required a report on the economic effects of the tariffs, which is politically maybe not the kind of thing that the Trump administration was looking forward to doing because it's going to end up being a report on the negative economic effects of a Trump administration policy. It postponed the toughest fights on the border wall, the abortion riders issues that uh, came up with the labor HHS education bills and the state and foreign operations bills. So really, this is kind of the definition of of kicking the can and just avoiding a shutdown for a couple months. There's also still a big scheduled rescission hanging out there for highway spending, right? Yes. uh, There's an automatic rescission of, I believe, about $7.6 billion in highway funds. Uh, This came up as some outside groups were pushing for the inclusion of a measure in the CR that would put off that automatic rescission. That was not included. So that is a, a that you know to be honest on the hill talking to appropriators about the biggest issues they were debating, that kind of went under the radar and was not the subject of a a massive debate among the top appropriators. But I know that was an issue that a lot of interest groups and industry groups cared about. So that, I believe, is something they're going to have to address later on because that was not, that measure that they wanted was not included in the stopgap. I mentioned it at the top of the show, impeachment is kind of sucking all the oxygen out of the room. Uh, is that going to have an effect on spending bills going forward as we approach November 21st? What are, what are appropriators saying about it? Yeah, we've we've all been asking everybody on the Hill about that, including Richard Shelby and other top appropriators. That's the question of the day. There's not a clear answer. Their, their answer is, on paper, no. There should not be an effect on the appropriations process. Uh, we're less than a year removed from the longest shutdown ever. And the, the more I ask appropriators, especially about what their expectations are, the more I hear, hopefully we all learned our lesson and we don't want to shut down. But there, there is the caveat that the president a year ago said he would sign a CR and then decided not to after pressure from conservative media. We have a very unpredictable president, and he's clearly going into an area where he has some emotional reactions. Following the president's Twitter account is is a very volatile experience. So there's, there's a chance things go wrong, but everybody I've talked to says there's no reason 
for it to go wrong with the appropriations process. Let's turn now to the Senate Appropriations Committee's work on the fiscal 2020 spending bills. Uh, they had a pretty busy September, approving 10 of the 12 annual spending bills. And most of them, but not all, were unanimous. Uh, so we have two outstanding, Labor, HHS, Education, and Military Construction Veterans Affairs. What's holding those two up, Jack? The main issues that have held up Senate appropriators uh, at the end of this summer have been border wall and abortion policy riders. The Milcon VA bill, uh, there's a request from the president for $3.6 billion in 2020 funds for the border wall, and they also have the question of whether they're going to backfill another $3.6 billion or so in military construction funds that were deferred in fiscal 19 to pay for the border wall then. So that one has about seven plus billion dollars in question marks about uh, the border wall. For the Labor HHS bill, uh, Democrats wanted to introduce an amendment, to offer an amendment in the markup uh, that would block the Trump administration's Title X rule that caused Planned Parenthood to pull out of that program. It's the rule that bars federal funds for organizations that refer patients for abortions. This also played a role in the state and foreign operations appropriations bill because Democrats wanted to but were not allowed to offer an amendment that would block the Mexico City policy, uh, which is a, a similar policy but for foreign NGOs. Underpinning all of this is also a disagreement, or, or rather just the fact that they don't have an agreement yet on uh, spending levels for all 12 spending bills. Uh, so the, the question of how much to provide for Milcon VA is up in the air. Democrats also want a lot more than Republicans are, are planning to provide yet for labor HHS. And uh, there will be a big question mark for Homeland Security where Republicans want to boost funding more to allow for more for the border wall and Democrats would like a few billion dollars less. Thanks, Jack. The spending debate and impeachment, obviously, will certainly dominate Congress's near-term attention. There is one committee, though, whose focus is a little bit less immediate. BGov congressional reporter Emily Wilkins sat down recently with the leaders of the House Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress, and she joins us now. Hi, Emily. Hey, guys. Emily, what exactly is this committee? So this committee is the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. It was begun at the start of this year with the goal of changing various policies around Capitol Hill to make Congress run more smoothly and more effectively. And they looked at various things such as IT programs, how are staffers using their technology, how are they communicating, are updates needed. They've looked at things such as staffer pay, they've looked at things such as the number of staffers that are in the office, they're trying to retain uh, staffers who have more expertise keep them from leaving to more lucrative jobs elsewhere in the city. They're looking at the rules, they're looking at the schedule, and they have a year to do their work. It's six Democrats, six Republicans, so a completely bipartisan committee. They can't pass legislation or approve of legislation. Rather, they wind up making recommendations and then passing those recommendations and then from there trying to work with other committees to turn those into legislation. What was your big takeaway from your conversation? It was a really interesting conversation. You can definitely tell that one of the things that Representative Kilmer and Representative Graves are most proud of is the bipartisan work with their committee. Honestly, though, I found one of the most interesting things was asking sort of how do you quote unquote fix Congress? Why did Congress break? Uh, it was really interesting because I've been in D.C. You hear a lot of different explanations for why Congress isn't running as efficiently as they could, why they aren't passing 
passing legislation and bills. And I thought there was one very interesting part of the interview uh, where Representative Graves just started talking about the fact that members don't really spend time together the way that they used to. Part of that is schedule changes. Part of that is having to spend more time with fundraising. Part of that is party politics. Uh, but you could tell that both of them really believe that, that if members could just spend more time talking with each other, that they might actually, that might actually translate into getting more work done. Well, let's go to the interview. I am sitting with Representative Graves and Representative Kilmer. They are the chair and the vice chair of the House Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. Uh, also, I'm just going to call it the Modernization Committee. We refer to it as the ModCom Committee. The ModCom. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to borrow that now. That's perfect. <laughs> and so can you guys just start off by talking a little bit about what the committee has been tasked to do and what they have done at this point? Because it's only a year-long committee. Yeah. Um, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll take first shot at it. The, about every 20 or 30 years or so, Congress realizes things aren't working the way they ought to, and they create a committee to uh, look at potential reforms to try to fix it. And this year's committee is the Modernization Committee, and we've been tasked explicitly with looking at a handful of things, everything from staffing, how do you recruit, retain, and uh, have a more diverse staff uh, to better serve the uh, interests of the American people, um, technology, one of our colleagues referred to um, Congress as a 18th century institution using 20th century technology to solve 21st century problems. Um, so we've been asked to look at some technology issues. Um, things like shared services, right now you have 435 basically independent contractors and that doesn't necessarily um, uh, promote organizational effectiveness or the best interest of taxpayers, so we've been asked to look at that. Um, and then there's some things that we're looking at that weren't explicitly laid out. Um, we were asked to look at rules and uh, procedures. The hearing today that we're having is on uh, rules and procedures related, related to budget and appropriations process. I think the American people really feel it when we have, as a nation, government shutdowns and continuing resolutions and some of the chaos you've seen in recent years. We're also going to um, be looking at things like calendar and schedule to see if, you know, if the way things are currently organized uh, is is um, best serving the American public. And if you if you wanted to run the kind of common string through all of those themes, all of it is uh, focused on how do you make Congress an institution that better serves the American people? How do you have Congress be more functional to get things done for the American public? Yeah, and let me, uh, I'll, I'll add, you know, first, Derek has done a wonderful job of leading us in a direction that's been successful. Um, yeah, he's, um, he's very humble and, and, and doesn't point out that we are the first committee in over a couple of decades to actually pass out recommendations in a bipartisan fashion, um, which shows success, and, and that is rare. And it's uh, only because of the way he has managed this committee and encouraging an environment of collaboration and ideas and let's work together. We come from different backgrounds, different regions, different interests, different parties, but we all have the same goal, and that's to have success. And, and so from a 30,000-foot level, when I look at our ultimate objective, it would be to create an environment and an institution in which people come to and they find purpose in their job and their work and they're effective. Um, they're able to accomplish their goals that better serve their constituencies, but also that their constituents look to this institution as, a, uh, as, as something they admire 
and, and they, they're proud of and they see that is um, working towards their interest and for their interest. And that's currently lacking. That perception is not where we would like to see it be. And so I'm really excited about the direction we're going in. So I have so many questions just from what you guys said, but I did want to start off a little bit. I mean, Congressman Graves, you mentioned that you give Congressman Kilmer a lot of credit for how he runs the committee. Obviously, this is a special committee in many regards. You guys don't make legislation. You sort of are looking at sort of this uh, a bit of a technical housekeeping type stuff, still important, of course. But I'm wondering, are there things that uh, you, you guys do in this committee that could be used by other committees to make them more effective in doing their jobs and getting legislation passed in a bipartisan manner? Well, I think um, in some ways we could be a model for how other committees could operate, just how the rules were set up for our committee, um, the demeanor of the committee, maybe the organization of the committee, you know, the fact that we're six and six Republicans and Democrats. It, it, it's pretty unique, and it's only one of two committees like that in the House. Um, you know, other committees are not designed that way. They're, they're obviously on a partisan setting, and always has been this tradition. But what we have identified, I mean, from the very onset, and this is one of the most revealing, I guess, tales about how this place operates, is the very first day that freshmen come here from a new election. Uh, they've been through the heated battles of their campaigns and the very first thing that they do on their orientation when they come here to learn how to run their office and start everything up is to go get on two different buses. Republicans go here, Democrats go here. You know, and then the next step is Republicans going to retreat, Democrats going to retreat so they can plan how to scuttle the other's plan, you know, uh, uh, objectives and such. And that creates this division in this environment, which we are a corporate environment, we're an, we're an institution and no company or corporation would operate in that way. Uh, so where Derek is leading us is what I see as a pathway that brings Republicans and Democrats together in a, in a global fashion, not just in a committee fashion, but ultimately through the whole house. Let me, you guys did pass, real quick, you guys did pass um, in July, uh, one of your recommendations was to make new member orientation a more bipartisan um, affair. Absolutely. You know, I think, uh, listen, it's a very complicated time in our country and in our world, and it's hard enough to navigate the boat in the midst of these rocky seas. It's even tougher if, you know, half the oars are out of the water beating the other half over <laughs> the heads. And so part, part of I think our task is trying to figure out how do you how do you write the ship, you know. And I, I give Tom great great credit as well. We've really treated this like a partnership. He's not a ranking member; he's a vice chair. Like we're we're working in tandem, and what that means, just from a procedural standpoint, is, you know, when we put together hearings, we put it together we put those hearings together as a team, you know, in terms of determining who's going to come and testify. Tom and I and our staff have a weekly meeting together to kind of map out, okay, here's where we're going so that there's you know, full uh, transparency uh, and partnership. You know, oftentimes when you have a committee, the first thing, you know, at the beginning of the year you get your budget for here's how much money the committee gets. Usually what happens is the um, first thing that happens is you divide by two and the Democrats get one half and the Republicans get another half. And what we realized is we have neither the t we have too too little time and too much to do to waste resources on kind of partisan conflict. Um, so we did something unusual. Um, you know, we decided to 
uh, take our committee's budget and use it just to solve problems that we were assi assigned to, to, to solve. And so we've hired the committee staff together. We have a staff director, we have a deputy staff director. Um, uh, you know, half of our team has Democratic backgrounds and half of our team has Republican backgrounds. And here's what's cool. All of them just want to fix Congress. And so we're not wasting time, energy, and resources on some of the things that just, you know, have led to Congress having a lower approval rating than headlines, right? A lot of the, I think the American people look at the bickering back here and say, God, can't you just solve some problems? We've now passed 29 recommendations as a committee, and all of them have been unanimous because people have been willing to get there for the landing because we've invited them for the takeoff. We have worked as a committee and said, okay, you know, here's a problem statement. Let's try to figure out how we can kind of draft solutions together. You guys have mentioned a couple times that you are the fix-it committee, you're hoping to fix Congress. How did Congress break? <laughs> so there's, I don't think there's any one thing, right? There's a, a few things that have, I think, eroded the ability of Congress to solve big problems. Some of them are, uh, are um, central to Congress, right? So in recent years, uh, you've seen an erosion of institutional capacity with regard to things like technology. So when the American public watched the you know, social media, the Facebook hearings, you know, I think they were alarmed at the lack of institutional capacity and knowledge with regard to technology. And some of the recommendations that our committee has made are geared towards, okay, how do we, how do we basically school up Congress in terms of its ability to navigate these really complicated issues um, and to restore some of that capacity that has eroded over the years. Um, the, the median tenure uh, for every staff position in Congress, personal staff uh, and committee staff is lower than three years which means you have just massive turnover of, of staff. And unfortunately, in, in, when that happens, when you've reduced institutional capacity, what fills that void is the executive branch and lobbyists. And that doesn't serve the interests of the American people. And so one of the things that we've looked at, we've made some recommendations that we're really focused on, okay, how do we, how do we ensure that Congress is an institution where talented people want to work and stay? Um, so those are some things that are just like implicit to the, to the system. You know, some of our, uh, our recommendations have been focused on civility, and we're going to be um, having a hearing later this month specifically on, okay, how do, you, how do we move Congress towards an institution that's more an organization that's focused on solving problems rather than scoring political points? There are external factors that aren't explicitly within the purview of this committee that also make it difficult, right? Congress is more polarized because the American people are more polarized, right? Even where we get our information, uh, you know, we, we, we sort of self, uh, you know, select uh, information that affirms our worldview. Um, we have a campaign finance system that further exacerbates the problem. So there's these sort of outside forces that have also made it very, very difficult. What we're trying to do is in every avenue where we believe we can make a difference to kind of right the ship, we're, we're having hearings making recommendations. And the one thing I would say, you're correct, Our, ours is not a committee that has legislative jurisdiction, but what we've decided to do is not just make recommendations and have them go sit on a shelf somewhere. We've turned every one of those recommendations or are in the process of turning them into legislation that will go to a committee and in our first batch, um, 
all 12 members of the committee signed on to the, onto that legislation, making it already a very unique. You, you asked, well, you, you, I mean, that's, that's an interesting question you ask there, but, um, and I don't know where, I think it's an evolution over time. This is the seventh time a committee like this has been created for similar purposes. And I think it's just a changing of times and, and such, and, and Congress has not kept up with, um, with how times have changed, and even from a technological perspective or any other perspective. And so this is like a reset moment, it's a refresh, but what's exciting about it, and I know Derek's experienced the same thing, no matter where you go, if you go talk about what we're doing, what this committee's doing, people are excited about it. I mean, it can be a, a, a Republican group, a business group, a, 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 an unaffiliated political group anywhere, and they cheer you on because they wanna see this be successful. They really want to see Congress do better. And, uh, and so we've got a lot of cheerleaders out there uh, uh, cheering us on. And uh, so I'm excited about it, uh, where we're going. Unfortunately, it's not being, it's not what you see on, on the sensationalized news media. So I really appreciate your interest in this because um, it's the bright spot right now in Congress, I believe this committee is. Well, I know that when I've talked to some people, and granted, I have not been covering Congress for a terribly long time, but when I talk to people who have been covering Congress for a while, and I ask them, how do we get to this spot where everyone's so partisan, has it always been like this, they will point to things like the elimination of earmarks, they'll point to things like power being taken away from committee chairmen to the leaders of the respective caucuses. Your committee has not been tasked with these items, but I'm wondering if they need to be addressed for us to see real change happen in Congress? I think you'll see a lot of those. A lot, I mean, when it comes to rules, you're right. When I talked about the evolution, I think we've noticed that over time when corrections have been made, Congress slips back to an old way. Uh, maybe it's rules changes or more of a power shift or uh, centralization. And, and, and I think this committee is committed uh, all the way across the board to look at where can we best empower the members to be more successful at their job, whatever that might be. And, um, and I think you're going to see us make great strides towards that, but that is as we're going through the um, process reforms of budget, that's a big, big issue right now. And uh, even members want to see that be more effective. And uh, I don't think any member wants to see the government shut down, and we've been through so many of those recently. Members don't like to see the appropriations process slip. They'd rather see it be successful. So, um, But there are, I think, a lot of rules, recommendations from members that have come to us through a member hearing and listening day we had. I mean, I, if I'm remembering correctly, Majority Leader Steny Hoyer actually brought up the earmarks issue. And I know that the House has voted to not take up earmarks right now. But, I mean, do you think that that type of thing could be helpful? Is that something, if it's not your committee, that there should be another committee or there should at least be some discussion about potentially looking into bringing earmarks back to changing the relationship between committee chairs and leadership? Yeah, my first stab at that is we, Derek and I have made a commitment not to prejudge any idea uh, at all. And, and we're, we're, everything anybody recommends, we, we give it merit for a discussion. Um, but we have to have three quarters of our committee agree on any recommendation that comes out. The hearing we have today, I imagine the topic will come up and our committee is committed to being listeners, as Derek said, and, and looking at solving problems. And so um, that's, I think that's the appropriate way for me to respond to that at this point. Yeah, and, and 
there are a lot of problem statements related to budget and appropriations, right? If you, if you look at the rules of the road that were set for Congress, I mean, I still remember when I was a freshman, went to freshman orientation, they had someone from the Congressional Research Service say, okay, here's the process for budget and appropriation. And they gave like a 20-minute presentation on it where they went into mad detail <laughs> about, you know, you know, you first you, here's, you do the budget resolution and then there's 12 appropriations bills. And, all that. and after like 20 minutes, they said, okay, but it doesn't work that way at all. Now let's tell you how it actually works. And then they, you know, spent the next 20 minutes talking about you know, all of the shenanigans that you've seen in recent years. And I remember sort of sitting there going like, but that first thing you described actually kind of made some sense to me, but it, you know. And so trying to get at how does this go off the rails so frequently? And what can Congress do to try to address that? Because when it goes off the rails, what has happened is the erosion of the role of the legislative branch, right? The, um, uh, when you just have continuing resolutions, you're basically ceding authority to, to make decisions on behalf of your, uh, of your constituents. And there are other examples of that too, and I think that's gonna be part of the conversation we have in today's hearing is, you know, you, you've seen, uh, particularly with regard to budget appropriations, you've seen more and more dysfunction and a continued erosion of the role of, of, uh, of the branch of government that was assigned to make decisions related to the power of the purse on behalf of their uh, of the American people. If you guys could snap your fingers and make any one change, magic wand, you don't have to worry about anything else, just whatever you want, what would be the one change that you would make to make Congress more efficient? I know mine right off the bat. Go on. And it won't be a recommendation we make, but if I could snap my fingers, it would be to require members and their families to move to Washington, D.C. once elected. I believe the, the separation of co-workers and their families not being in the same city and going to the same schools and in the same communities can, can attribute to the breakdown of civility. Um, I, I know that uh, when I first ran, I mean, it was a commitment. Okay, I will live in Georgia, my home is in Georgia, and I've maintained that commitment. But at the same time, I've missed out on the opportunity to develop relationships with those whom I work with and need to understand more and, and understand their perspectives and develop those relationships with. And my children have been uh, neglected that opportunity to grow up with uh, other children in the same career path that I'm in and the same understanding and, you know, to get to know Derek's family better and other things like that. But if, if we all spent more time together and our children spent more time together, I think you would see less yelling and rock throwing at one another as well. I think um, the, the problem that Tom's speaking to is the thing that, uh, that keeps me up at night the most, which is the American people are exhausted by the degree of partisan bickering um, and the inability to just solve problems. I don't know that there's one lever to fix that. Um, you know, it's strange. I came out of a state legislature where the final three bills I voted on in the Washington State Senate were a balanced budget, which got two no votes out of 49 members of the state Senate, a constitutional amendment to reduce state debt over time that I helped author that lost seven, or, six Democratic votes, and uh, then a big jobs bill, a big uh, infrastructure bill, capital budget, that lost one vote. And 
those all passed with very broad bipartisan support, in part because we all wrote it together, we worked on it together, and we passed it together. And when you think about that in Washington, D.C., that sounds like I'm talking about a foreign country, right? That seems so far from the way things happen in Washington, D.C. But it doesn't, I don't think it needs to be that way. And, um, you know, every bill that we took up when I was in the Washington State Senate was under open rule, meaning if you had an amendment and as long as it was germane to the subject that we were talking about, it was, it was voted on. I'm not suggesting that we should have a rule to have everything taken up over, uh, by open rule. But I guess I use that to point out that we, have, we don't just have a rules problem, we have a norms problem. And I think Tom's suggestion is you know, something that's trying to get at this, this issue of norms. You wouldn't take things up under an open rule right now because the immediate presumption is one side or the other will play politics to try to jam the other side. And that's a breakdown of norms, right? When we had an open rule, it wasn't abused in the Washington State Senate because there was a presumption of, well, I don't know when I'm going to be in the minority, and so I'm not going to try to screw the other side. You know, I'm going to try to work with the other side. You know, we even had something called the no surprise rule, where if you were going to do something that was kind of political in nature, you even flagged it for the opposing party's mm -hmm. leadership. Like that, that's unheard of in Washington, D.C., right? And so I... I I'm, I'm speaking to a problem, I'm not, I'm not, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm failing to directly answer your question, but I, I think what's Tom, what Tom's pointing out is there has been a breakdown in norms, and uh, later in this month we're going to have some hearings related to civility and trying to figure out, okay, how do you do a refresh on the norms? Um, I don't know yet what all the levers are that you pull in that regard, but I think that conversation, even though, uh, and again, this isn't something that we were explicitly as a committee tasked with, because it is so central to the breakdown of getting things done, I, I actually think this could be one of the more um, both interesting and impactful conversations our committee has. And so for this committee, I know you guys mentioned that this happens once every 20, 30 years. I know there was a similar committee on budget reform the previous session of Congress. Does this need to happen more often? Is this the right way for Congress to go around making sure that it is keeping up to date and being modernized? Or do we need a different mechanism to make sure that Congress is always being as efficient as it possibly can be? Well, I, I you know, I, before I got to Congress, I worked in economic development, but before that I was a management consultant for uh, McKinsey and Company. I would suggest that a um, productive, constructive, efficient organization does that self-evaluation more than every 20 to 30 years, more frequently than that. Um, I'm glad this committee exists. I think there's, there's value in having this sort of self-analysis uh, more frequently. That was BGov reporter Emily Wilkins' interview with representatives Derek Kilmer and Tom Graves, the leaders of the House's Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. Thanks to Emily and to Jack Fitzpatrick for joining us today. That's our show. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Find more on the subjects we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg Government at about.begov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at BGov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Danielle Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Shank. Nico Anzalata is our sound engineer. Our theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nasita. More information on that can be found at premiumbeat.com.
Hey, I'm Adam Allington. I'm the host of a new show from Bloomberg Environment called The Business of Bees. Here's what you need to know about it. We travel around the country talking to people at every corner of the honeybee ecosystem. This is the largest managed pollination event on Earth. In fact, commercial beekeeping is more important to farming than ever before. But bees are also under threat from pesticides and invasive pests and mysterious diseases. It's sort of like Christmas when you go to the hive in December and you open the lid. You just hope somebody's home. If you're interested in bees too, I think you might like the show. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.